I'm wondering, read your take on the fact that as of the time people are listening to this, two billionaires have now gone to space. Oh, two of them have. Okay, so the only two I know of just went really high in the air. Who went to space? Where do we draw the line? I mean, I got pretty high on a trampoline once. I guess they're positioning this as the way into consumer-based space travel. I also wonder what space travel would actually look like if it became commercialized. Could you imagine what people will try to pack in their overheads? Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 233 of Touchpoint. I am Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed. I'm busy packing up my bags for my upcoming flight to space. Well, good. Let's record the next episode early or maybe record it from space. I wonder what the Wi-Fi connection would be on that flight. I don't know. Has anybody ever recorded a podcast from space? Like we could get some coverage, I guess, or publicity for that, maybe. Well, anyway, that's neither here nor there. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If this is your first time uh, joining us, welcome. If you're back for another episode, thanks for coming back. We certainly appreciate it. Of course, you're listening to Touchpoint, and that is Touchpoint, the podcast. I know it's confusing. Also part of Touchpoint, the network of podcasts. Uh, You may be saying, I don't know what that means. Well, if you'll go over to touchpoint.health, touchpoint.health is the website that houses not just this podcast, but a number of others. We're getting close to, I think, 20 at this point, all on different topics, all different show hosts, all that kind of fun stuff. Float over there, see what's going on. You may find something else that you really like. We've got a new show on the network hosted by physicians, hosted by nurses and other clinicians and, uh, you know, looking at health IT and experience and all, all kinds of fun topics. Anyway. Go over there, check that out. Also, while you're there, you'll notice up in the top nav a thing called the uh, TPS report. That is a weekly email that you can sign up for. And we promise uh, this is not uh, some way for us to spam you constantly. We will send you one, count it one email a week with five articles to start your week as aggregated by our show hosts. So anyway, it's just a, it's a great way just to have some quick links uh, to kind of get your, your, your week started and uh, maybe spur some ideas and that kind of stuff. So we'll pause here and uh, let you go do that, and then we'll be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And read, consider this, 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. So lately, Reed, we've been hearing a lot about uh, medical misinformation on social media. It's become quite a topic and even politicized. It has, certainly. I mean, what hasn't been politicized, I guess? You know, so uh, obviously this is an easy one, but this is nothing new, right? Everybody's got the ant that's posting uh, weird stuff on Facebook. Actually, I don't know that I have an ant posting anything weird on on Facebook. Oh, I uh, do. I do. But that's just what happens. And I think, I'd love your take on this. I think it's because people, in some respect, feed off this idea of conspiracy. Even things like JFK assassination or any any milestone event in history, uh, the moon landing, talking about going to space. I think you can take a lot of that kind of stuff and you know people feed into, I'm not going to say they like it, but maybe they do like it, but they feed into... 
kind of that conspiracy piece. It's interesting. It engages them in some way, and that's that's kind of where they go. And then obviously there are things, probably the most common thing, and what is the vaccine uh, autism link? I think that is something that we as humans, we try to desperately seek understanding from things that are maybe not that clear to us. We'll, we'll get into this in the second half of our show today, where we'll talk about how medical information and, and medical advancements as they happen, there's a lot of uncertainty about it. And so that is a natural attraction to when we think about like vaccine misinformation, that happens a lot. But w- w- let's be clear up front here, Reed, we're not going to get into the political side of this. No, no, no. Because we really want to address some of the systemic underlying challenges that are built into social media platforms today. And then we'll kind of address how hospitals can help. But let's do a really quick recap of what like the recent headline news, right? And like we just said, you know, we're, we're not going to be political. We may mention some things that were obviously right. in the news uh, and those types of things like this first piece here. Dr. Murthy, the Surgeon General, was interviewed. I, I want to think, was that on CNN maybe or something like that? I can't remember. Anyway, but was urging, oh, really he said two things. One, that the, the platforms, the social media platforms uh, were doing some good things, but not enough. And then he also kind of leaned into this idea that it's really everybody's responsibility. Like, hey, if you don't know for a fact that what what is true, don't like, don't repost it. Kind of a thing. Um, is that fair? Is that kind of a fair synopsis there? Exactly, and particularly in the in the light of a national health pandemic, th- this becomes really important. And he even brought in personal stories. He lost ten members of his family to, to COVID, so he has a personal touch behind this, right? It's very important. I think also it became even more politicized when the White House weighed in over the you know last week into this week, indicating that social media platforms need to work together to ban these purveyors of misinformation. And in fact, they refer to a recent study that we'll link to in the show notes that has some details around it, which identified 12 people that are responsible for 65% of the misleading claims and lies about the COVID vaccines that are proliferating across Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, when you think about that, right, you think, well, there's only 12 like main accounts <laughs> Why is this so hard to do, right? I mean, we, they shut down people over the craziest things, right? And I've seen I've seen memes this week where, you know, it says, well, you know, Facebook can, you know, moderate for nudity and, and other things. Why can't they just, uh, you know, find these 12 accounts and shut them down? But it's not that easy, right? It's not as easy as just shutting down 12 people. It's like kind of like whack-a-mole maybe, and I'm going kind of off script here a little bit, but... My assumption would be is as you shut down some of these, you know, six more pop up, right? Yeah. Because yeah. you know, even if you identify the individual, and they do name some folks, uh, certainly in this NPR article talking about these 12 people uh, that are behind most vaccine posts on social media, you know, even if you took someone's profile down or, t- you know, y- you've got people that are big advocates of these individuals. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because I think really what we're saying here is like you can trace it back to these 12 as far as a cascade goes. But I don't know that shutting down the 12 really stops the cascade. And they're even finding ways to get around the ways that you can moderate and shut these down. So part of it is, you know, maybe starting up mirror accounts that post the same information that are not tied to you, that are hard to track down. The others, though, you know, maybe they're not even overtly writing it in words about COVID, maybe they're putting up images, or maybe they're showing videos with hand signals. Like there's a common thing right now on, on social media, if you put up your your fingers like the letter V, that means that you're anti-vax. I did not know that until I read this article. That was interesting to me. Interesting. Yeah, these are ways that you know people are starting to proliferate. And of course, social feeds all of these audiences, and you can these audiences then amplify and repost and repurpose. And you know, those not only your crazy aunts, but you know, other people, right, are publishing this stuff. It just gets to be very complex and hard to moderate. Yeah, and it's like, you know, again, not to wade too far into the political space here, people's beliefs and that kind of thing, but it, you know, where do you draw the line between freedom of speech and misinformation and hurt, you know, hurting the general public? And then, you know, you always get into this argument of like, well, if we do this here, what does that mean for all these, you know, other fill in the blank things? 
like maybe religion or whatever, right? And then it's like, well, what is religion? You know, so you end you end up down these these trails, these paths, and it's just like I I don't know, you know. And so you kind of get stuck in this point of like not doing anything because we can't figure out what to do first. Now, it's not that the social media companies, these big tech companies, are kind of sitting on their hands not doing anything. In fact, it's very telling the way they're trying to respond to misinformation in general, but particularly around health misinformation right now, which is the topic du jour. We're going to link to this in the show notes, the way Facebook, YouTube, and also Twitter have responded through their blog posts. The way they're responding is kind of telling about their platform and those systemic challenges. Let's first talk about Facebook's blog post, which they posted, you know, this Monday in response to the White House kind of pointing their finger. And so that's why their post is called Moving Past the Finger Pointing. They say social media plays an important role in society, but they're reemphasizing the fact that it's a whole of society approach to end this pandemic. And that pointing at big tech is maybe not the right way to solve this problem. I get that. I get why they're saying that. They have a vested interest in saying that. But they also then go on to say how they are seeing users of Facebook responding to the vaccine. They uh, talk about the vaccine acceptance among Facebook users that in the U.S. specifically that it's increased. So they, they talk here about a couple of stats since January. Vaccine acceptance uh, on the part of Facebook users in the U.S. has increased by 10 to 15 percentage points. So somewhere starting out around 70 percent, they're up more like in the 85 percentile range. And that the racial and ethnic disparities in acceptance have shrunk considerably. In addition, I think this is this is interesting. Uh, 85 percent of Facebook users in the U.S. have been or want to be vaccinated against COVID-19. I think I'm connected to the other 15 <laughs> no, I'm just, I, I'm just kidding. I'm just, kidding. yeah. But I, they're basing that on the fact that they created reliable resources and even sort of a vaccine finder capability within their tool. They added calls to action. So what they're saying is that 85% of Facebook users in the U.S. have actually responded to credible information or clicked on the button that says where to find your vaccine. So that's really their solution. Now, they've also gone through and tried to, you know, squash these, the dirty dozen, as they're calling them, right, the 12 health misinformation aggregators, but that's too hard for them to moderate that because it just goes out of control. So instead, they're saying, we're going to send people through these tools. And then whenever they click on the link, as typical Facebook metrics are, you know, when you're talking about Facebook measurement, they're going to count a click through to finding out information about the vaccine as potentially being an interest in the users about wanting to be vaccinated. Now, YouTube just recently this week announced a whole new way that they're actually addressing misinformation on their platform. Uh, I would assume most people know YouTube is is part of the Google conglomerate. So you'll see some similarities in this with things that they've done, like in search, for example. First, they've instilled some partnerships uh, with some leading organizations that people trust and know, you know, Mass General, Cleveland Clinic, uh, folks like the American Public Health Association, as well as clinicians and creators to further kind of increase that accessibility of high quality content on the platform. That's an interesting, you know, first first step, ultimately leading back to this idea of making it easier for people to find the right information and answers to their questions. They're creating these health panels, uh, health source information panels, videos to help viewers identify from authoritative sources, health content shelves, that highlight videos from these sources. I mean, all of it is, again, navigating to credible health information from trusted sources. I think that's kind of a resonant theme here. And they're using, by the way, principles developed by a panel uh, that was convened by the Na- National Academy of Medicine around how people react to health information and best practices around developing you know, user experiences so that more people will be inspired to click through to those. Okay, so now we got we covered Facebook. We talked about YouTube. What is Twitter doing? Oh boy, Twitter. So they've also written a blog post. It's a couple of months old at this point, but you know they've done some things that, that many of you have probably noticed or, or seen. You know, so things like applying labels to tweets that contain misleading information about COVID nineteen vaccines. They removed 
you know, some of those most harmful and, and kind of misleading content, if you will. And they've even introduced uh, some guidance. Um, and so they've removed more than 8,400 uh, 8, tweets, they say, and challenged 11 and a half million accounts worldwide. Wow, that's quite a bit. Uh, that's a lot. More than more than twelve, <laughs> more than twelve, and they introduced also a strike system. I'm sure you're familiar with that, right? Like if you post misinformation, you get a warning, and then three strikes, and you're out. And then the length of duration that you're out is equally enforced. You know, it's their goal, as they say in their blog post, is to use both a combination of automated and human review to address content that spreads health misinformation. So all of these, if you look about. Look how they're responding, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. You can see that it kind of reflects some of this, the inherent challenges of moderating content on social media. And while I agree that the role of health misinformation on social channels is a problem, I think there are other ways that we as organizations, as healthcare organizations, can help to start weighing in on this conversation, maybe swaying the audience a little bit. Let's do this, Reed. Let's take a brief break here. And then when we come back, we'll talk about some of the challenges of medical knowledge and the evolution. And then we'll also talk about how some hospitals are responding to vaccine misinformation. We'll do that right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. All right, so before the break, we talked a little bit about kind of what's happening in the space, right? You know, misinformation, the platforms you know, that we most commonly associate and, and participate on, you know, what they've said in, in recent uh, weeks and months. So now we're going to shift a little bit, like you said, and, and we're going to dive in here on changing minds about why doctors change their minds on changing minds of others changing minds. <laughs> now, that's, that's not really the title, but it's close. <laughs> And so I think, you know, this is, this is interesting. It's from Wired, our friends over at Wired. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had friends at Wired, honestly, that would be fun. But anyway, yeah, this is, this actually talks about medical knowledge and the evolution of medical knowledge and how that's a challenge, right? When it comes to sharing that openly and in public and how that's been amplified in the pandemic. So they start off by saying medical knowledge is always shifting. And that's been a challenge for doctors and patients. We know this, right? Through our own lives, we've seen care practices change. Me, for example, as a type 1 diabetic, when I first got it 30-odd years ago, there was one way that the doctor said, this is the way you manage your diabetes, and that has since evolved and changed over the years. They even indicate here, medical knowledge can come with a disclaimer that says it's true, but for now. Well, isn't, isn't this just like how we define science? I mean, like it's just what we know to the best of our abilities, like this minute kind mm -hmm. of a thing, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I, and I think that's everybody holds on to these beliefs so tightly once they hear the answer that they like. Chocolate is good for you. Yes. <laughs> I read that somewhere. And so I'm going to continue to eat chocolate. Now, later on, we may determine, you know what, actually, it's only dark chocolate or it's not chocolate at all. Or it's, you know, it's really the pure thing. It's not stuff you buy in the store, whatever. Like, we, yeah, 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 but, but chocolate's good, you know, kind of a thing. And I think that's kind of where we find ourselves here is we, we don't allow for science to evolve over time. We stop with the answer we like. Well, they give an example here, right? That, for example, hormone replacement therapy, you know, for many years, like 50, 60 years, there was a certain standard that you work with, like menopausal women, they would do hormone replacement therapy. But then after about 40 or 50 years of this in practice, they started to realize that maybe we need to revisit this and, and change it. So in 2013, there was a trial that demonstrated that therapy may be more riskier. And if you think about that, that took over place over a very long period of time. Right. 
And usually a lot of that happened in that face-to-face relationship with the doctor and the patient. And then the back end where they're doing the research and tracking to see how these therapies work usually would happen between doctors in laboratories or doctors at clinical trials. And it wasn't really widely spread out through the public. What happened is over the last 18 months is that's shifted. It was back in January of last year that we heard of this thing called COVID-19, and we knew nothing about it. Now, look back at this, Reed. We're mm-hmm. 18 months later, and it's like everybody's an expert on COVID-19. Everybody. Everything's been trotted out on public channels. Well, and that's the difference, and they call that out in here. They talk about, you know, they say medical reversals, but I would say just even you know, shifting and thinking and care pathways and the way we do things or whatever. It's usually very uh, a slow progression, uh, multiple studies, you know, that kind of thing, right? And, and what's happened over the last 18 months or so is that COVID-19 is probably more, not probably, is more visible than anything else in history as far as like this type of thing goes because of where it finds itself in the age of the internet and, you know, those types of things. And so because it's more visible and it moved quickly, that's, you know, where we find ourselves, I guess. Think about this. This whole thing about sharing this information publicly can do two things. It could, one, it could erode trust. They, they point to a study that they did. In 1966, they tested that 73% of Americans reported having confidence of the leaders in medical profession. By 2012, that number dropped to 34%. And part of that is because this debate about clinical effectiveness and medical trials and therapeutics, et cetera, started to be happening on a national level. News agencies started to report about it. We read about it in newspapers. It was no longer just uh, reserved exclusively for JAMA or any kind of peer-reviewed journals. It's now being out there in public. We talk about cancer advancements. I think Alzheimer drugs is another one, right, that recently kind of came out. We learn about these things now. They make good headlines, but they also are very much of interest and top of mind to us. When we start to share this, like, changes in therapeutics, or changes in how we react to COVID, should we wear masks, should we not wear masks, et cetera, that could effectively erode the trust that people have in the very thing that makes the scientific process that strong, right? Is that we're constantly learning and evolving. But a lot of people are now still pointing back to, well, you said this last year, and now you're saying this. I knew that wasn't important. Right, right, right. Again, we like we like to align findings or sound bites with things that we prefer or like or that fits into our lives and you know things like that. But I think you know this is where the trust and we've talked about the Gerard study a number of times over the last I don't know year or so. But you know that trust piece in clinicians and even hospitals for some to some extent us being up so high on the list ahead of elected officials and all that kind of stuff we like I'm part of this you know i think that's important in all this you know is is the role that we play and the ability that we have to influence others and so that's a real responsibility certainly that we're putting out good information right they underscore too right the face to face relationship with the doctor is important and that still is where it happens if you're working with your doctor and you prescribe some kind of therapeutics or even you discuss your perspective on vaccines and how that all works, that tends to be much more effective to individuals. But if you start to build trust in medicine in this like larger broadcast kind of format, that could could pose a lot of potential challenges for us. And that's what we're seeing on social media. We're seeing people that say, oh, this is the scientific process. We're just evolving. Our thoughts are evolving on COVID. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other half of the society, it feels like, is thinking, well, actually, I can't trust it anymore because we don't really know. And so that leads us to what can we as representatives in the healthcare industry do? I found a great article, Reed, that we'll talk about now, which is, it's called Seven Hospitals, health systems share how they're combating COVID-19 misinformation. Yeah. And a lot of these folks listed in this article certainly have been on the show, friends of the show, maybe folks just Chris and I know, you know, from the conferences and, you know, the, the world, this is a, a big space in a small world or something, I guess. Yeah, maybe. exactly. Yeah. So we'll go through what, what a couple of these folks had to say. The first one is uh, uh, Amanda Tortovich from the Cleveland Clinic, and she works in the marketing department over there. And Certainly many of you listening have heard her and seen her at different conferences and things like that. 
but she talks about the fact that their organization, the Cleveland Clinic, strongly supports a widespread vaccination and believes it's the key to controlling the pandemic. So what, what does that mean? It's important for them, she says, to combat COVID-19 uh, vaccine misinformation. Even before the first vaccine was approved for emergency use, their content team, so here's the takeaway, their content team was working to reassure the public that the vaccination is backed by science uh, and then that certainly it's safe and effective. Yeah, and they have the upper hand when it comes to that, right? They are a content powerhouse. Another person, Nick Ragone from Ascension, good friend of the show, they're proactively reaching out to associates, patients, and the public as a transparent and trusted resource on vaccine information across the community. So what they're doing is focusing on broad awareness marketing, including using social media accounts as news channels for timely updates, which you can imagine the challenges of that, right? Because as things Mm -hmm. ever evolve. But then they're also conducting individual outreach through email to get ahead of questions. He stresses, most importantly, putting forward the clinical leaders as sources of trust. I think that reinforces some of the, the things we know about trust in healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. And again, much along the same lines, Ashley O'Brien from uh, Inner Mountain out in Salt Lake City. She talks about you know their leaders in the clinical, operational, even strategic communication roles coordinating, right? So making sure everybody's on the same page about the latest information and, and then actually getting that out, much like Nick's talking about in Ascension, but getting that out to those healthcare professionals, the patients, the community members. And, and obviously they're looking for guidance from the CDC, the FDA, the World Health Organization, even state and local uh, health officials and departments to understand, number one, what's the overall guidance, uh, the safety of the effectiveness. And then I, I would assume at that kind of state and, state and local level, that's where you're really getting in, input on supply, prioritization, access, you know, the logistics piece of it, right? I'm sensing a theme here, which is, you know, leveraging your strengths in your digital presence as a way mm-hmm. to to help to amplify this. So Suzanne Hendry from Renown Health, also been on the show. At Renown, a lot of their physicians are actually on social media. So what they have done is doubled down by asking these clinicians to call out any inaccurate Im- information immediately as false and redirect the communication to focus on their facts. So now imagine that. I, again, if your organization has a lot of physicians that are on social, this might be a, an approach for you. She even mentions that the CEO of Renown, who's also a physician, he holds regular town hall meetings for employees, the media, and the general public, and encourages them to ask questions. Uh, that's an interesting approach, too. And then... Um Jennifer Gilkey, she's at Dartmouth-Hitchcock up in uh, uh, New Hampshire. And she said that, you know, they, they certainly realize and recognize the fact that there is misleading information on the internet, right? And that that's driving a lot of the hesitancy around people going and getting the vaccine. Given that in this case, in their case, the state is distributing uh, the actual vaccinations. They're focused on what can they do to communicate accurate, fact-based, timely content, uh, to the patients who consider them the trusted source, right? So again, back to kind of the trust piece of who people are looking to. They're looking at those clinicians, right? And they're using certainly all the channels available to them, the paid, earned, own, social, so kind of that peso model to combat that misinformation. So they're creating campaigns around things like quote-unquote vaccine myths. Uh, they're having content on their website. The Cure, which is their podcast, which is uh, kind of a direct-to-patient or consumer podcast. They're using that to distribute information along with you know, emails uh, and then certainly you know, Facebook Live and all the social platforms and things like that, allowing people to even ask questions in real time. The last two health systems that they highlight here, Catherine Harrell from Franciscan Missionaries of Our Lady Health System, that's in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and Phil Bridges from UNC, kind of double down on the fact that the employees themselves are great conduits, right? So what they do is they are arming their employees with all the information. That includes the providers, the frontline providers, the nurses, et cetera, with uh, information. They were the first ones to actually be exposed to the vaccine, first ones in line. So they see that as a way to kind of cascade that to that one-to-one communication that they may have with the patients. And they encourage, you know, arm their employees with information, uh, keep them informed. They have websites, they have a variety of different things, emails, etc. Of course, they do stuff publicly, but they're, they kind of double down on that inside-out approach. It, what strikes me about all of these is f- there's two themes that I see. One, it's about amplifying 
trusted medical information because they're leveraging the trust of their organizations mm-hmm. and whatever that may be. And then the second theme I see, Reed, is that they're really leveraging what their unique strengths are in their communication and marketing channels to reach out to those audiences. So some are encouraging physicians to talk. Others are like encouraging their employees to be armed with that information and others are doing public facing campaigns. What are your thoughts? At the end of the day, it's the idea that folks trust clinicians and therefore we need to be active online. That's the simplest. Now, you just heard all those examples. There's different ways to be active online. There's not, you know, one size fits all. I think you've got to understand your market, what the competitive nature is. This is potentially even not potentially, this is something that you could as a market or a region or whatever, go to other care providers in the region and partner on certain things. If you've got the two big hospitals in town and typically they're competing for everything, if they joined forces around an awareness campaign, what that would do for like, oh, wow, this really must be what we're supposed to be doing. You know, to, you know what I mean? Like, I think there's some opportunity here that's not about patient acquisition. So I think this is a good uh, good opportunity to, to press pause for a second and uh, flip to a aforementioned clinician that p- people uh, like and respect. I had a chance to sit down with Dr. Brian Vardabedian just here recently and, and talk about just the role of certainly clinicians, but all of us kind of in the healthcare space, why it's important to participate online, you know, th- those types of things. And so this is something obviously not new to him and really not new to what he's talked about for years now. I mean, we've heard him talk about this up at the Mayo Clinic conferences for, I don't know, 10 years. Um, and so anyway, so we had, a, we had a really fun conversation and interesting conversation. Always enjoy a chance to visit with him. So uh, without further ado, we'll take a uh, quick pause and then be back with uh, Dr. Brian Vardabedian. All right, welcome back to the Ask the Expert portion of the podcast. Today we are uh, delighted to have Dr. Brian Vardabedian back on the show uh, Dr. V, longtime friend of the show, actually does another uh, show on the network called The Exam Room. So again, touchpoint.health is the website that we mentioned earlier. You are welcome to navigate over there. The Exam Room is his, is his show. Be sure to check that out and subscribe to it as well. Welcome. Hey, Reed. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Absolutely. So those that are maybe not familiar, elevator pitch of, of who you are and where you are and kind of what you're doing on a, on a daily basis. Yeah, I am a uh, director of community medicine for gastroenterology for Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about technology and how it's changing us as doctors and as patients. And you can certainly find his podcast, but 33 charts, 33, the number is 33charts.com is his uh, blog. I encourage you to go check it out, sign up for his weekly newsletter. All right, let's let's jump in here. Uh, we've been talking, Chris and I've been talking a little bit about this idea of misinformation online and roles, responsibilities, all that kind of fun stuff. We saw the Surgeon General's piece there on CNN, I guess, and the White House's announcement and that kind of thing. But you, you and I were talking before we hit record about you know really what is how do you define misinformation, right? <laughs> like, right. I, mean, I think that may be yeah. the bigger issue here. I, I don't even know how you. Where does that start and stop? I mean, this is a, you know, if you listen, you listen to what the president said and even the Surgeon General, I, I think there's kind of this belief that information or misinformation is kind of a black and white thing. And uh, because it's black and white, and that's kind of the way we see things these days, everything is pretty straightforward and binary. Because it's black and white, Facebook should be able to instantly uh, fix this. And while I typically am not a huge fan of Facebook, I think it's a tricky, it's a tall order to kind of say that they should be handling all, managing all the misinformation that's appearing on their platforms. That definition is really problematic. And then there's two questions, platform, you know, we're talking about Facebook here, but really any platform, I guess. There's the can you, and then there's the should you portion of the equation, right? Like, can can you identify misinformation? I, right. I don't know. And that's where, like, where do you... There's a lot of gray area there, I guess, um, especially yeah. depending on the topic that you're talking about, because it's easy just to default to what we've talked about here recently, which is COVID, the vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. But really, it's, I guess, any misinformation. How do you identify that? And can you identify that? 
And then is that really the role and responsibility of Facebook? They're obviously the high level perpetrators who are spreading a lot of the worst and most harmful medical misinformation. Uh, the bigger problem is with the stuff that's more nuanced. A good example is John Mandrola wrote a Medscape uh, editorial a couple of weeks ago about the myocarditis in teenage boys with a vaccine. And he raised some real concerns about it, very legitimate concerns. Uh, we still recommend this for teenage boys, but the question would be in, in this new world order where we're really sort of censoring information that's perceived as bad or dangerous or maligned, you know, would John lose his, uh, you know, lose his spot on Facebook? Would he be censored? And we need to be able to have, as docs, we need to be able to have this dialogue. We need a place to to discuss after studies are published whether there could be a problem with these. And we've seen throughout the entire pandemic that there have been circumstances with masking and with uh, CO2 retention, all these other things that we thought were one thing that afterwards we find out were, were quite the other. So we need to have a space where we can have ask questions and raise concerns. And that's kind of one of my big concerns with this, this buckling down on misinformation. Chris and I talked a little bit about it earlier in the show, but this idea that, and everybody's apt to do this, right? They see something that they agree with, therefore it's correct, right? And so they click the retweet button or the like button or they, you know, yep, I knew it, you know, kind of a thing. And I think that goes back to this idea of personal responsibility. Um, And so we'll get into what that means for clinicians here, here in a minute, but I mean, just me uh, or my crazy aunt or whoever it is that's propagating a lot of this stuff, we play a role in this as much or probably more so than any of the platforms we've talked about, I would guess. Yeah, certainly as individual citizens, we have to be careful about what we curate and what we share and recognize that our our mother-in-law and our are, that crazy aunt, or, or they're vulnerable, and uh, what we pass along contributes to this this epidemic of misinformation. You know, I've always suggested that uh, when it comes to media, there are two parties that are kind of responsible. There's the person who creates the content has a responsibility to to disseminate accurate information, but there's also responsibility that lies with the person who consumes that content. Health literacy is important too. We 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 have to be responsible. There's there's this sense that somehow Facebook has to take care of us and be our big daddy and, and, and fix everything when in fact there is some responsibility on all of us as consumers. And then there's that third piece, which is what we curate and share. This isn't all on Facebook. Uh, we, we share some of that responsibility, Reed, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the health literacy piece, honestly, until you said that, I hadn't thought too much about that. But what does that look like for most folks? Like, how do you uh, you know, how, how do you learn? How do you stay up to date? I mean, I'm in this somewhat every day, but not as much as obviously as intimate as you are with the health space, certainly. I mean, I'm at an agency. I just talk to people, but at least I'm around it to some extent, right? Or at least I know who to go ask, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. You know, a lot of this is about finding the right signal and using the right sources for the information that you access every day as a healthcare consumer. Uh, using reliable sources, trusting your healthcare professionals, and limiting uh, your inputs to the most reliable sources. And it really kind of starts with that. That gets back to that responsibility that we have as as, as consumers. But it is it's, it's, it is more complex than that for sure. But uh, so much of it is, is is mediated by by our education level and things like that as well. Well, and I think too, you take somebody that either has a chronic, maybe they're they're diabetic, you know, they have a chronic illness of some sort, or the acuity level is much higher. They do a lot of research and probably are fairly knowledgeable in the space. You probably deal with a lot of these uh, patients and 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 parents of the of the folks that you're dealing with, just because of the complexity, right? And they've had. I think what's shown over the last year and a half is when we talk about vaccines or something like this that really affects everybody, then you're, then it's, it affects everybody, right? It's, it's people that are spending a lot of time educating themselves and, and not. Um, and so I think that's what's, what's interesting there. When you think about 
you know, the, the responsibility of, of just the general consumer, that's one thing. Uh, I know you and I, I you, you've talked about this at conferences. You and I have had conversations about it, but the role in the moral obligation, I think you've put it of, of clinicians, uh, physicians specifically, uh, making sure that they are advocating for and pushing the right agenda, the right content, the right message, you know, those types of things. Can you talk a little bit about that of just, especially in this day and age, why that's so important? Yeah, I, I think we've, we've all made this assumption that people trust the internet more than anything else. But if you look at the the research done by Pew, uh, health professionals remain the most trusted sources of information for patients. Uh, and I think how that needs to translate into the 21st century here is that we all have, as we've discussed in other podcasts, this moral obligation as physicians and health professionals to participate in the online conversation. If you can imagine how things would have been different uh, 15 years ago when the vaccine crisis first hit, if all the pediatricians, all 60,000 pediatricians in the American Academy of Pediatrics have been participating in the conversation, it never really would have gone anywhere. So I think that as these uh, trusted sources for patients, if, if, if we're out there sharing and curating that information, that's the most accurate, and that may be the greatest service we can do. Well, I think because I, I, the danger is if you don't, right? You talk about the vaccine piece from 15 years ago, whenever. Nobody stepped in and said much, and we let a mainstream celebrity write a book and go on a bunch of talk shows. And so, therefore, this must be true. Right, right. And so I think that's that's the downside of this is if, I mean, sure, you can not say anything, I guess, and you're not spreading bad information, <laughs> you know, by definition. But if you're not saying something, somebody will say something. And I guess that's the danger. Yeah, I guess uh, like Lee Acey used to say, the solution to pollution is dilution, right? And the more we can get out there and share the best information, uh, the greater the odds are that uh, that information is going to hit our patients and going to hit that consumer who's anxious or reticent. Um, you know, I think there's also a responsibility to read for, for influencers. When we look at some of the uh, social media influencers who have such a tremendous reach, they carry this similar responsibility. And I think that's something that gets lost sometimes. That's interesting that you mentioned that because I think probably not many of them, unless they're truly in the health and wellness space, probably more so in the wellness space than the health space, but um, true influencers with just these massive followings. No one really signed up for that, but celebrities, famous athletes didn't really sign up to be role models either. You know, you had the famous yeah. Charles Barkley thing, you know, and his quotes and that kind of deal. But the reality is, you know, that's what they are. They're role models, you know? And so I think it's like kind of part of the territory, you know, there's the, the good and the bad. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's really interesting. So there, there is a responsibility, I guess, to your point for those folks to, back to the health literacy piece to make sure that they're informed and understand what's going on and making good alliances with organizations and individuals around the country that, that are really, uh, uh, you know, spending time in this space. Yep, absolutely. Another phenomenon that, that, that does happen is that we, we tend to kind of conflate influence with authority and very often the influences are on the on the right side of history. Other times they're they're not, and we do have to recognize that difference between people who have a just have a big reach and nothing else, and the people who are true authorities in epidemiology and public health. Well, most people listening to this show uh, are probably in a marketing and communications role, most likely at a provider organization, a hospital, healthcare system. Chris and I talked a little bit earlier in the show. Uh, there were some some comments uh, made by folks at different leading organizations around the country of kind of what they're doing to educate and that kind of thing. But if you think about it, you know, you're you're on the uh, provider, like literally the provider side of the equation. What what are some recommendations, tips, ideas uh, for things these individuals should do? So conversations they should go have. Uh, people they should go talk to and, and really kind of suss out, you know, what what do we need to be doing as an organization to try to help fuel in our community, in our market, our region, you know, whatever that that may be. 
You know, I think as as far as providers, we have to look at the opportunities that present themselves to us in the most unexpected places. As a gastroenterologist, I'm not normally talking about vaccines, but I do have the opportunity to be alone in rooms with with teenagers and can have conversations with them about the vaccine, especially those who've not taken the vaccine or have misinformation about it. I've been able to sway a good number of teenagers who've been refusing to go ahead and get immunized. And I think that one-on-one connection, that grassroots level conversation uh, when we least expect it can have real influence. It's been the same with friends and neighbors. It's remarkable that people really trust my opinion in ways that are a little frightening. Um, (laughs) So so I think as health professionals, we have to recognize that we have a remarkable, we come from a remarkable position of power in terms of influencing people. And we've seen that some, you know, Gerard, we've done some studies over the last 18 months or so. And part of that initially was around safety and return to care and, you know, some of those types of things. But we've asked the trust piece each time and much like Pew, you know, uh, physicians followed by nurses, followed by hospitals were the top three and elected officials and media and all that stuff were way down the list, you know, as far as, you know, credible and, and where trust relies. And so I think, you know, continues to really focus on um, the opportunity, but also the responsibility that uh, people in those roles and organizations have. So, uh, man, this has been great. I certainly appreciate the the time and uh, the conversation and your willingness to come on and chat for a few minutes. Maria, this was a lot of fun. We need to uh, like have a, f- a full proper show at some point where we can catch up. Yeah, absolutely. And again, uh, anybody that's interested, 33charts.com, Dr. Underscore V on Twitter. Touchpoint.health is the website where you can find his uh, podcast, The Exam Room. Again, D- Dr. Brian Vardabedian, thanks for coming on and we'll uh, talk again soon. Thanks, Reed. Special thanks to Dr. Brian Vardabedian. Always excited to have him on the show. Uh, it's just been such a long time. Certainly a friend of the show, but just friend, right? And um, we've known him for years. He's been uh, a big part of uh, all the things that have happened up at the Mayo Clinic. But yeah, be sure to check him out, 33charts.com. And a doctor, spelled out Dr. underscore V on Twitter, uh, he's a great follow and a great read. He, he also has a weekly email. But if you will, speaking of emails, go over to touchpoint.health and sign up for the TPS report. We talked about this earlier. We talked about the fact that it has five articles to start out your week. Now, at the bottom of that email, are a couple of quick links to upcoming industry conferences, education, all that kind of fun stuff to allow you to make sure you get that on your calendar. You know that it's coming and uh, can even register. So, again, special thanks to uh, to Brian for coming on the show. All right. Well, let's wrap this one up and we will, uh, we'll call it a week. Uh, recommendations. What do you, what do you have today, Chris? Reed, I'm going to recommend a docu-series that's on the latest streaming service called Peacock. Are you a, a member of Peacock? Have you signed up no. for that one yet? Okay. Mm-hmm. I can't keep track of all these streaming services and we certainly don't pay for that one, but uh, Peacock does offer uh, some great content and they are an NBC-based uh, streaming service. And of course, since NBC is hosting the Olympics this year, they re- released a five-episode docuseries that's completely free called Golden, The Journey of USA's Elite Gymnasts. My wife kind of encouraged me to watch this. This isn't one I would turn to normally. But I tell you, it's very compelling. It's about all of the gymnasts, the female gymnasts that are trying out this year for the U.S. gymnastics team. It's fascinating. And all, all of the, you know, because there's so many different contenders, they're kind of following along in the steps of many of these, these potential candidates. Now, we already know who's been chosen. This was filmed beforehand. So there's a little bit of that, you know, who is going to be chosen kind of uh, feeling to the, the show. But it's just fascinating to see of gymnasts from all different walks of life. Of course, there's a few from Minnesota, so that's a little, you know, a little pride for my state here. Also, you know, some some others that you know, a gymnast, that 24 uh, year old, one of the oldest potential candidates that is trying out for the gym team, who had COVID and how she's getting back into uh, gymnastics and dealing with kind of the challenges of of uh, recovering from COVID and pneumonia, a subsequent pneumonia. It's just really compelling documentary and. 
And I would just recommend it to anyone who wants to get excited for the Olympics and, you know, maybe likes uh, the gymnastics, in particular the women's gymnastics team, Golden. And it's completely free. All five episodes are free. You don't have to pay. There you go. All right. I'm recommending a docu-series, a docu-mini-series. Anyway, it's a four-part series. It's on Netflix. Chris, you'll appreciate this. It's called This is a Robbery. (laughs) Uh This is a Robbery, the world's biggest art heist. This is a four-part series that covers the 1990, March 1990, Art theft at the um, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Yes, yes. So several years ago, uh, for those listening, Chris and I uh, did the podcast, did this very podcast from the Kairos like client uh, meeting uh, there in Boston. And one of the events one night, we all went to the uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. They had food, and anyway, it's it was really neat. And you walk around, and it's this big big kind of home style building that's got a courtyard in the middle. It's fascinating building. Um, and there's several floors. And um, But back in 1990, there were uh, 13 works of art that were stolen uh, by two thieves that were disguised as police officers. They robbed the museum in the middle of the night. These 13 works of art are worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $500 million. And it's uh, known as the greatest, uh, it's like the highest uh, property theft in history. There's even a Rembrandt that was in there. It's known as his only seascape. It's called the storm of, uh, the storm on the sea of Galilee. Anyway, it's fascinating, right? It's never been solved. Uh, there is a currently a $10 million reward if you can, uh, if you can find the folks that stole it. So anyway, it's a four part series it goes through the whole thing. It's fascinating, especially I found it really interesting because obviously Chris, you and I've been there and walked through it. But I think what's interesting, and, and I won't go into all the details, but you know the, the history of the museum does not allow for it to be changed, like the curation of it. You can't move the stuff around, right? The paintings and things like that. So these 13 paintings that were stolen, there's just empty frames hanging there. It's really wild. It's really, yeah. really wild. <laughs> Um, but there's some there's some caveat that if stuff gets moved around or changed, I think it has to all get like boxed up and sold or so, or something. So like nobody can move anything. It's really wild. So anyway, it's called This Is a Robbery, and it's on Netflix. It's new. It's a new documentary for 2021. Love it. It's so compelling. It's moved me so much. The next time I go to Boston for business, my wife is going to come with me, and she and I watch the show, and we're, we're definitely going to the museum to, to check it out. It's very, very fascinating. So yeah, I strongly recommend that too. Well, very cool. Good episode. Thanks, uh, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks for uh, hopefully telling a friend that it's still the number one way that you can help us out is to let other people know about the show. And uh, we certainly would love for you to reach out to us. LinkedIn, Twitter, probably the best way to do that. Touchpoint.health is the website. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.